Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Phil Tiger Slacker Podcast Hello Slackers, welcome to this week's Slacker Podcast I'm editing this one really late at night and I'm recording this really late at night So like maybe I'm sounding a little bit more nighttime. <laughs> than I normally do. Um, I, I hope you're all good. Um, I hope you've all had a had a great week and uh, you're ready for this podcast. You need to be ready for this podcast. You need to be on your toes um, because it's pretty relentless um, from from the startup. And yeah, I enjoyed this so much, and I don't think I've enjoyed a podcast as much editing it editing it back. Um, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I'll be putting clips of this um, up on the Slackerfill YouTube channel, which um, I just started quite recently. I'll be I'll put a couple of links to it below if you want to go and subscribe to it or whatever. Um, so, at the moment, before we get into like today's podcast, um, what I'm doing is I'm making like loads of different content a week. Um, you've got the traditional Slacker podcast that, that comes out, and it's a you interview or a new guest um, that comes in with the demo, and if you you know come on every single week, you know that that's what happens. And I've I've started a brand new one called the Slacker Friends podcast, which is like it's in its infancy. It's such a little baby. It is a music panel show, and it's meant to be meant to be fun, and it's meant to be a little bit irreverent. And we get two different musicians on, and I ask them loads of ridiculous, stupid questions, and we take it from there. Um, so I'm creating loads of unique content um, for you guys as well, especially for the the, the patrons uh, of the podcast. Those uh, people are the ones that are basically keeping the podcast free uh, for the thousands of you that listen to this every week. So ideally, like, you know, what the, the dream would be is to be able to, like, sack off everything and be able to, like, uh, just work on Slacker and make content full time. Um, for you guys but listen i'm nowhere near that um at the moment so for the people who um subscribe to the podcast for two dollars a month big up to you thank you so much for your subscriptions um it means a lot and if if you're not then that's okay too because like i mean i make this for people to enjoy 
and for people to get something out of it and that's that's what podcasts are all about um if you want to subscribe if you want to become a patreon if you want to support original content then go to patreon.com forward slash like a podcast and big ups um right let's get into it let's get into our podcast uh for this week it is with um the one and only bob geldof the boomtown rat the singer the songwriter the author the political activist um and the man who put on live aid uh like god the, the guy's got so many strings to his bow um he's probably like the 12 string guitar that he got out in the middle <laughs> of, of our chat he actually does he rips the guitar out and starts blasting away at it um somewhere near the start and you know i really feel like i i could have we could have gone on talking for about three hours and i could have just sat there and not said a thing um and maybe if I ever get the opportunity again I probably will get him back on and <laughs> and sit there and just not say anything because he's just so entertaining to listen to this is genuinely one of the best slacker podcasts that um I've I've ever been a part of I say done because I didn't do very much um but I enjoyed it immensely and I enjoyed it just as much editing it back so I think you're gonna like this one if you're fresh to the slacker podcast and you're just coming on um and this is the very first one you've ever listened to well, there are over 50 other episodes um, for you to binge on. Um, some of the artists you'll know, some of them you won't. Um, try some of the ones that you don't do. Like, you will be pleasantly surprised, um, I think. So binge away, have fun, and enjoy <laughs> the behemoth that is Bob Geldof on the Slacker Podcast in three, two. It's the Slacker Podcast, and um, we welcome. I don't know. Do I call you Sir Bob? Do I call you Bob Geldof? I, like, I mean, we've only just met, so like, I, I have to feel like I have to be formal with it, right? Yes, you have to be. You have to be actually doing this interview, you know, prostrated on the floor in front of you, you know, <laughs> bumbling into the carpet with humility. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we we could we could do it like that. I'll I'll like I'll then be um, bend over and you can put your like feet up on my back. That's that's the sort oh, of really? yeah. <laughs> You're already getting into the dirt, are you? <laughs> <laughs> How's things going? I know how you doing. Yeah, it's good. Um, you know, I've uh, it's a terrible thing to say. I've been enjoying this, you know. Um, sort of enforced indolence, you know, guilt free inactivity. Every day is Sunday, you know. I mean, uh, I, I I I panic if I don't have anything on. You know, I have to be frantically busy, uh, or else uh, my mind starts going into overdrive and inventing stuff, and ninety nine percent of it is nonsense. So um, it's only really on Sundays when nobody else is working that you're forced to do nothing and, and therefore it's guilt free. But so this has been kind of like that. And I've got a, you know, a big house and um, a big garden and I've had uh, the family staying during, you know, they're leaving now. Um, but uh, the weather's been amazing. It's the longest time I've spent looking and absorbing a beautiful spring, you know, um, in England. <clears throat> so, um, and it, uh, in, you know, like your job and my job, I can talk to the other guys in the band. I can 
forward track to them if I'm writing. They can send stuff to me. Uh, we brought a single, made a video in lockdown, which is cool, a cool video. Um, even though we were miles apart, one's in the West Country, one's in the Midlands, one is in London, I'm in Kent. So I can get on with it. And, uh, you know, the fact that nobody else can do stuff suited me, suited my mind. Does that mean you're, like, still still creating at at the minute? Like, because I know that the album just um, recently came out. Like, the, like, are you still in that sort of mind frame of wanting to write more and create more or is it still sort of serving the project that that just came out um i, I mean if if people are in bands listening to this then you know that once you've done something that's moving right along is sort of what's in your head um it you, you get into a weird state where you're still trying to get people to listen to what you've just put out um but your mind is way down the track now you know the problem for us was that all of this happened on, on the day of lockdown uh, we announced the tour we announced the citizens of boomtown album that came out and uh, by the end of the day the government had announced the lockdown so it really uh put any plans we had like a lot of people but it, it knocked us for six really because i couldn't get out and plug the thing or you know do, do, do my part of that job uh, you know, the, the documentary, which before we, we, we started this, you said you'd watched um, last night or something, that came out, which was useful because you saw the album go back into the charts and stuff like that. But the killer for us is that we've been always essentially where, where the rats make sense. I mean, I, I mean this properly, where they make sense is in two areas. Um, one, in a state of chaos and confusion, the music seems right. It, it, the context in which the rats make music seems to be correct when there's chaos and political chaos, economic chaos or confusion. That's when it seems to work. And, um, uh, of course, the second part where that all comes good is live on stage. And we had to cancel the tour, of course. And uh, that was a blow because it had sold out in effect. And we've rescheduled for October, November, but we don't know you know, one, whether people will come to gigs at that time, two, whether they've any money left, three, whether they're prepared to be in close proximity to each other sweating, uh, four, whether the band is prepared to, you know, be hand in glove with 14 traveling people, crew, band, road managers, hotels, buses, sound checks, gigs, you know, all that's up in the air. Like a lot of people, uh, it's far less of a, a worry than for other people, but that's my game, you know. So, um, yeah, uh, it's a long answer to the question, are, are you writing stuff still? That's a process that doesn't stop. Um, it just goes on in my head. I've been busy doing other stuff during lockdown. But, you know, this morning before I started doing uh, the podcast, I was just noodling with the guitar. I've got three guitars just beside me here. And uh, depending on what I fancy, I just pick one up, and a couple of things sparked off in my head. They may be something, they may be nothing. Does <clears throat> does picking up which guitar dictate what 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 you're going to write? Like, do you have like a really old one, like that is your favorite, or do you have like a really new one that you write with certain stuff? Um, I'll show you. This is my favorite at the, at the moment. This um, you know, this Hofner 
uh, thing. It's it's a it's a new guitar. I mean, it's not as if it's an old one. It looks like an old one, but it's. Is it a hollow body? You know, it's it's very mm. pretty. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, I got a twelve string over there, and um, it sets you off on different parts. I've got a six string, and. Uh, beside us acoustics and they just set you off on different things you know uh when i pick up the 12 string i immediately think i'm bowie you know <laughs> and i start off <laughs> on that sort of track you know um, pick up this the six string and i'm sort of mean young or something you know i don't know what the hell goes <laughs> on but you know you, you get taken off on a little yeah. mind trip we had the, the my king my personal king of the 12 string um on the podcast about a year ago um johnny marr so anytime yeah. like, I see a twelve string, I automatically just like start hearing Smith's lyrics in my head. Sorry, so Smith's well, riffs it, in my head. Of course you are. Of course you do because I mean, when you hear Johnny, you hear Roger McGuinn, you hear um, you know James Honeyman Scott from the Pretenders, mm. who you know made a whole thing of twelve string, uh, which is odd because Johnny's you know avatar is Rory Gallagher, you know who's very far from. Um, uh, you know, uh, a 12 string, but um, yeah, I, I can see exactly how that happens given your age and generation. But I like with um, with Rory Gallagher, you mentioned him. Like, I remember my my mom's partner gave me um, his Live in Europe album when I was about 18, 17, maybe. And I was playing in bands and stuff at the time, I played in bands for about 10 years. And um, we went down, we grabbed sleeping bags and went down to the Rory Gallagher Festival in Ballyshannon, like about a week after getting the album. And it's always kind of um, like you know, I've, I, as I've got older and I'm playing playing music and playing music on the radio and stuff, the, in the lineage of rock and roll history, Rory Gallagher's uh, seat at the table isn't big enough. It's not close enough to the top. I think. I think the the problem is that he was um, a purist, um, and uh, a blues player, um, when there was a wealth of players essentially doing the same thing with a variation. I mean, if you put it on now, I'll tell you the difference between each player. I mean, you know, close my eyes and I'll tell you who's playing, which is the extraordinary thing about any instrument. Six strings, a piece of wood. I'll tell you what fingers are playing what, just by just by listening, <laughs> yeah. you know. And um, Gallagher is utterly distinctive in his playing. But, I mean, I used to see them as a local band in the Stella House Ballroom in uh, Donnybrook in Dublin. And um, tastes were really good. And um, But I wasn't getting a vibe of taste. Simply the proximity of them in a small dance hall was fabulous. And watching Rory and his undoubted commitment to um, authenticity. But it was when I saw them at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970 or something, they were on about three in the afternoon and they really just were elevated. They, they were easily one of the best bands. They're never shown on the best of the Isle of Wight, the early Isle of Wights. And they were by far, oh, I would say top four groups of the, the three or four days, you know. And that was when he just absolutely blew me away. But his whole demeanor was very like Vans. It's it's to do with, it's about music. You know, he eschewed the whole star thing. Wasn't it? He looked amazing though. Um, he's one of those guys that had he lived, 
um, you know, people would be, he would be an absolute standard one that you referred back to, that you go to and you listen. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the one to talk to about this, of course, is Johnny Moore. Like, you know, he knows every note and has learned it off uh, by heart. But in terms of, you know, there's Jeff Beck, there's Jimmy Pace, there's Eric Clapton, there's, you know, there's Rory Gallagher, it goes on and on and on. He just stayed rooted in a version of uh, the Blues Delta. Yeah, he wasn't. And he wasn't very interested in um, the, the the pomp and glory of pop music. Really, he was just a, more of a musician's musician. Really, um, you know, he got very heavy. It, it veered towards metal at sometimes. You know, and like he was a showman, and um, so he may say that he wasn't. It's a bit like Jeff Beck, who's a maestro. You know. You know, Jeff, like, you know, in fact, all these guys were very diffident about whether they were being true to the blues or whether they were selling out. Look at Clapton. Every time he was in a band that moved slightly towards pop, he left until he until he was writing endless pop songs himself. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Page made no bones about it. He was always up for doing pop music, you know, so um that group, that coterie of musicians who all came out at the same time, um, I think when it moved off into sort of uh, metal and stuff like that, they bowed out and the whole thing took a dip. And if, if Rory had hung around, then he would have been, you know, a major, major, major band uh, on the scene. I'd love to like know what people like that would have thought of uh, where where it ended up with like bands like Metallica and Speed Riffs and <laughs> and, and all the rest. I think of it. they would have got it, but they would have said, you know, not for me. It's kind of silly. It's what they would have, uh, you know. Look, I know a lot of these guys, and they kind of go, you know, but they do know they're responsible for it. I mean, how can Jimmy Page, like, and Led Zeppelin or Eric Clapton and Cream? not be responsible yeah. for what subsequently happens you know yeah well i mean it's a direct influence on bands like black sabbath and it really kicked it all off yeah, completely you know i mean uh, i mean having said that i prefer the earlier crowd you know mm. to all the other stuff you know the speed metal and stuff speaking of the guitar heroes um we're we're gonna kick off with a a, a demo um this is this is a, a really early demo isn't it like from the yeah, very- the, the, the boomtown rats yeah, I mean, um, we were dr- we were visited by the A and R guys who eventually signed us, and they brought over two kids from England, Steve Brown and Steve Lillywhite, who went on to produce, well, um, you know, U two and all uh, those people, and um, uh, was Steve was married to Kirsty McCall and stuff like that, but they were as young as us. And we just said, they just said, play every single song, you know. And we did it in one afternoon. I think it was about 30 songs, in amongst which we just fired, you know, our own stuff. And I thought those tapes were lost. And um, there was, they were, uh, some are, but I we found two, Pete Briquette and I found two. One was uh, My Blues Away. It's just called that because I keep shouting My Blues Away. I mean, you know, I, I don't. You know, I, I can hear the words, but I think I was just making them up into yeah. the microphone, trying to impress <laughs> that we had loads of songs. And um, uh, the other was um, Doing It Right, I remember, which I could have chosen. But this was really much more um, the sense of the time. Um, we were playing very fast. Um, 
live, this, you know, this would have been one of the ones that really went down a storm live. I think subsequently, um, Rocket from the Crypt, you know, heard this and what's have recorded it, you know, which is kind of weird and interesting. I don't know how they worked out the words, you know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's, let's blast in a little bit of it so everybody can hear. Okay. <laughs> My Blues Away, uh, a demo from the, the Boomtown Rats, and the energy on that is is ridiculous. Yeah, that's one thing, but how did we ever get fucking signed? It sounds like it's just this complete thrash, you know? Like It's good, though. I, I, I just caught some of the words. Um, um, the way things are, they can't get worse. If we got to go, I'll go first. That's kind, of, <laughs> kind, of like that. kind of sums up the early days of the, the Boomtown Rats there, doesn't it? It does, yeah. That's what we sounded like pretty typically. It was, it's was. it got that sort of like, I mean, I, my knowledge of that era of like R&B and stuff isn't very, like it doesn't really exist outside of like um, them and Van Morrison and stuff like that. 
But like, well, it's very influenced by them, very, 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 and it's like um, uh, the feel. Doctor Feelgood were our sort of north star. I mean, once I heard them, uh, you know, when we got together and you're just playing all the songs that you kind of like, which of course, if it's a load of guys, they all like different stuff. So that lasted for about one, two rehearsals. And we said, look, this is a mess. What do we all actually like? What do we have? What's the common denominator? And of course, it was early 60s R&B, obviously the Stones, the Who, etc. Uh, but they pointed us back of, back when we were kids to Muddy Waters and How to Wolf and that. So we did that. And But I had no idea how you could make that contemporary. Obviously, we were doing Gloria. It's a benchmark of all this stuff. You, you, if you can't do that, don't don't go, don't play in a band, basically. Um, and then the Feel Goods album came out, Down by the Jetty, and um, that was like, oh, that's what you do. You you write about your local area. You know, you don't have to write. Unlike say Rory writing about Clarksdale, Mississippi, going back to that, you write about Dunleary, County Dublin, just like. What's it? The field goods were writing about Canby Island, which we'd never heard of, but actually writing beautifully about it. The lyrics are like really great. And I tune into that kind of straight away. And um, the, the fact that they recorded on four track was not just cool, but it was probably we had access to a four track. We would no ex- access to a 24 track studio. And obviously there was no computing then. So all of those things sort of gave me a steer. And I began then writing about um, the people around me or my own stuff, but we played it faster. Um, and I don't know why, um, if you saw that uh, Citizens Boontown documentary about the rats, say, for some reason I say we're, we played fast. It just felt felt right. It wasn't considered like groove R&B. It was just this, you know, fuck off, you know. But it's, so, it, it's that energy and it's that angst that comes with that age of like of writing and just being pissed off, especially Ireland in that um, in that era. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it, I mean, over the years, there's been points where it seems like a decent place to live and other points where it seems like an absolutely horrific place to live. Um, I thought what was interesting about that is like, it's a precursor to punk, really, isn't it? Like, I mean, you might have had the New York Dolls and maybe the Stooges uh, and maybe the Ramones floating about in 75, but, like, it was almost like a light in the top of the, the, the dynamite for what punk was yet to become. We didn't know the Ramones. Uh, I loved the New York Dolls. Um, I liked the Velvets. I wasn't too aware of the Stooges. So... Um, what I was listening to a lot were uh, early Roxy music, um, the Dolls, uh, the Velvets. The Velvets, not so much. I was confused by what Lou Reed was doing, like, you know, wonderful songs like New Age and um, Sunday, Sunday and things like that. I loved, but they confused me. I didn't know why I liked them so much. I didn't understand that they were sort of so fresh and new. They sounded old, but fresh and new. And... Uh, I mean, you know, like, you've got to contextualise 1975. You know, the thing is, one, we're Irish, so that's really important and boring for anyone not Irish. So in London, 76, 77, in England, UK, you had 27% inflation. That's it. It's The economy's over. Like, there's no jobs with that happening. Um, in New York, you had a bankrupt city. Um, you know, the police didn't police the... the uh, 
fire brigade never answered your calls and you could hardly drive for the potholes. Now, I know that because it was there. It was bankrupt and the American president said New York City dropped dead on television when they asked for help. Uh, in Ireland, um, again, you're too young, but, uh, you know, there was zero economy, none, as per normal. Migration was part of the economic plan. But worse than that was this terrible claustrophobia of silence, this sort of national suffocation. And why was that? Why were we all quiet and silent? It's almost as if we were ashamed of the place because uh, in, in the north of the island, there was in effect a civil war. Uh, we called it the Troubles, like it was a minor dose of political flu. In fact, it was 3,600 people murdered. The government in the, in, the, in the Republic were at least tacitly supporting, if not overtly supporting, they were wholly corrupt. The church knew about it, of course they did, and were generally silent, except for a few brave priests. Uh, meanwhile, they were busily abusing the children of the parishioners, and the business community was making money out of everything. And yet, we all shut up about this, I, you know, and it got to a point where enough was enough. And uh, we didn't set out to be the ones that would necessarily be noisy about it. But, you know, we were very young. We were offered no future. The place stunk and was putrid with corruption. And so the minute we got on telly, I kicked off. And uh, there was another generation watching that, you know, Bono and Sinead. And I don't know if on the north they were watching the Late Late Show, but basically everybody watched it. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I think it was the – I don't sure – I don't say we kicked it off or we were the precursor to anything in Ireland, but finally, like, you know, just enough now, enough. And that had a huge impact. And then when we came here in the middle of 76, the pistols were, had been forming during the early days of 76 and were now coming out of their chrysalis. And Did you rate the, the pistols? Huh? Did you rate the pistols? Because I know, like, some like they're, they're... I completely rated yeah. the album. I thought it was like just a still do. It's one of the absolute best rock and roll records ever made, in my view. Mm. Um, we were on a sampler record of all the new bands. So the new bands were uh, Blondie, the Ramones, the Talking Heads, the Vibrators, the Damned. Uh, Richard Hell. This was a sampler called New Wave, and our record was looking after number one. Uh, the Pistons weren't on that, but really no one knew these bands. So in the first gigs we did in the UK, we did them with the Talking Heads and the Ramones, and we played in schools in that, the afternoon. That's in incredible. Thinking about that now, like those three, <laughs> those three bands are so like you know seminal um, and so influential to like, probably two generations of musicians that have come come since. <laughs> it was, it was, I mean, I thought it was crap. I didn't know what we were doing. Four in the afternoon in these gymnasiums with the light just streaming in, you know? So you're telling and me it, you and David Byrne were like probably getting changed in a canteen? <laughs> we, were all, we were all in the classroom, the three of us. And Joey, Joey Ramon would always have uh, boiling water and he'd put a towel over his head and he'd be inhaling the steam. You know, for his delicate vocals, <laughs> and like he'd come up and his hair would be wringing wet. And I, I said, "What are you doing?" And he and he said, "He said no, 
like, you know, New York, like, you know, Queens. You know, he says, you've got to do this. And I've done it ever since from, from that day, from Joey telling me that's what you've got to do with your voice. But the, in front of us were these like 150 bemused you know, fourth formers or something, you know, in, in mullets and Bay City roller outfits or these school uniforms. <laughs> and they thought we were shit, you know. Um, they couldn't get their head. The ones that they hated most were the talking heads. They could not get their heads around the short hair, the Lacoste T-shirts. Yeah. And clearly you couldn't follow the Ramones, you know. I mean, this is, for me, one of the greatest bands, you know, I've ever seen. And um, so it ended up, with the talking heads first, the rats second, the Ramones third. Um, I think we only did about four or five gigs before everyone just thought <laughs> enough. But yeah. imagine the schools letting us do that. You know, I don't know how we got the gigs. I, I can't. Really- I don't remember anything like that happening since. Like, I mean, I went to a Christian Brothers school in in Oma, and I think like the 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 most music that we ever got was either maybe the time my band played once and then the other time would be like when when brother goff would stand up and sing hymns and put ashes on your head <laughs> but it's like yeah i mean even like t- talking about school like you like we we both went to sort of catholic schools in different in different eras um like i went to christian brother school it was quite quite um quite sport focused it was quite jo- jockey um with uh like you know big gaa uh, just big, big sport, and I didn't particularly enjoy it. Like I think you kind of had a similar experience in Blackrock College, didn't you? Yeah, ours was at the big rugby school. I mean, the basic job of the school was to be the feeder for the Irish uh, national rugby team, in effect. And um, I mean, it's got a it's got a big reputation. The school, not just for rugby, but just as a school. Um, and you know, the old man was spending every penny he had trying to get me and uh, my sisters a good education. I mean, he wasn't making any money. He sold towels around the countryside of Ireland in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, how much money can you make driving your car around selling towels and that? So he'd leave on Monday and come back on Friday. So the net result was, you know, obviously I did no work. My mum was dead. So I didn't do any homework. So I got into trouble at school. Um, what sort of trouble did, did you get into because like if, if you're in school and you don't want to be there at that age you're just going to act out like i mean i know myself from getting suspended and things like over the years that you, you just you'll, you'll lash out or whatever yeah i mean i was um i got beaten every day i can't remember a day when i wasn't beaten and i was a low level pain in the arse i wasn't a disruptive influence saved by this sort of monolithic silence glowering from the back, you know, um, or smart arse questions or comments or just irritating things. Um, the kinks were huge. and I loved um, the kinks. And the, the kinks used to wear their ties. You had to wear a tie, I think, like now. And instead of pushing the tie through the last loop, you know, so it looked like a, a tie at the top, they just flipped their tie over so it looked like you know, just, just like not a knot. Yeah. And, you know, so I went into school with this thing and they'd say, what's that, Gildaf? <laughs> and I'd say, it's a tie father. And he'd say, take that thing off. And then when I'd take it off, I'd say, where's your tie? And I'd hold it up. And he'd say, put it on properly. So I'd put it on, but I'd do the kinks, not again thing. <laughs> so I'd be sent home. 
But what I'd do is I'd buy a bit of fabric at McCullough's Dunleary for sixpence, uh, just enough, a, a cut off. And I'd go home and I'd machine on my the singer sewing machine. I'd sing, just sew the back up and come back with a different tie. And psychedelia was beginning. So I'd get these hideous, lurid, coloured fabrics and come in with, you know, these completely bonkers ties. But it was a tie. So they were torn between, you know, they'd say, what's that? And I'd say, it's a tie. But like, you know, it was annoying in class. And now the Battle of Waterloo, 1848, they'd be staring down at the back of this sort of glaring <laughs> tie sort of thing. So you get kicked out of class for wearing a lure of tie, which sounds fun, but it was crap. Uh, then I wouldn't play sports because I didn't like it. And also I didn't want to cooperate. Um, so that was, again, a black mark. We had uh, a report card every week where you got up to nine. Nine was the maximum per subject. If you got if you got everything over six, you were on the honours list. If you got three fives, you were on the blacklist and your name was read out to the school. I was on the blacklist the whole time. Uh, I was the president of the debating society. Hello. Of course, of course you were. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't wear what's it, uh, the school blazer to the away matches. So I wasn't allowed to travel with the debating team. So uh, <laughs> so that was useless. And uh, and then my own man made me become a boarder in an attempt to try and get me to pass some exams. And it was during the 1968 revolutions, you know, and um, Mao, Mao Zedong. So I imported books from China, Mao's Little Red Book, you know, but I got them in Vietnamese because it was during the Vietnam War. And I had boxes of these things and I gave them out to all the all the other boys in school. And uh, so they, they, the, the political police called on the, the school, the head of the school, and my own man and I was called in and I got kicked out being a boarder for being a bad communist influence on the school and shit like that, you know, it just went on, you know. Um, were the were the rats, were they, were any of them at Black Rock College as well or did like, was that more of a Dunleary thing, like where you would like hang out there? No, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that those of you who watched uh, the documentary on BBC a couple of weeks ago, what I didn't understand about the band and, you know, when you're looking at a past of yourself, uh, the only comparison it maybe is if you're watching old movies or old videos of yourself as a kid in the family, you, you think it's cute and you you might remember it, but you're looking at yourself at four or five and you think, yeah, cute, you know, but it's sort of you at a distance. You can't really associate with that individual. And that's really the effect of the documentary. What I hadn't understood was that None of us had a family, and I think that ended up being important. So, as I said, my dad was away all week. Mm. I didn't get on with him at all. Essentially, he was kind of a stranger because of that. My mum died when I was seven or something, so she wasn't around. So there was no family. The others, Jerry, the guitar player, I had no idea about this until a year and a half ago when I saw the rough cut of this that he came from a brutally dysfunctional family. I mean, really bad. No idea. He was he was very quiet. The music he played was a lot of um, uh, folk blues, um, you know, really well. 
Blind Gary Davis, Mississippi John Hurt, these sort of people. That's what I liked about him. Um, he was quiet, married, uh, very young, uh, still the same woman. And then the others were all packed off to boarding school at really young ages. Um, so Pete Briquette came from Bally James Duff in County Cavan, and he was sent to a boarding school, uh, I think, in North Dublin. The others were. So none of them actually had that family thing. But I didn't know that. So it's kind of weird that we more or less clung together rather than you're bound together with ambition, which is what a lot of bands do. You know, they find a they find a uniformity in, in music and desire and ambition. We kind of needed to be a group. So we all lived together in one house. We're sort of like the Beatles in a hard day's night. You know, we lived in Chessington, all of us, the crew, the band, girlfriends, wives, transient people coming and going for a long time. Uh, that's the first thing. And uh, the, 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 the second thing that I thought was weird was because, because of that, I think, there was this uniform, this anger and this deep rage because if you'd hear what the guys say now, and we didn't talk to each other about doing separate interviews, all of them say at the beginning that you know the director said, "What what did you want to get? At? What did you want to do with your life?" Gary says, "I wanted to play my guitar and drive my motorbike both loud and fast and <laughs> yeah. get the fuck out of Ireland." You know, Simon says, "I was I, I I got this cheap barge and was doing it up and hoped to sell it and get out of Ireland." All of us said that. You know. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So we were offered nothing. There wasn't a family. And so when you enter the, you know, economic world and nothing is offered to you, just like Joe Strummer or John Lydon or Joey Ramone in 76, there is no future offered to you. So the greater family, if you like, the nation state, fails you again. So, of course, that was the drive. And you can hear that and say, my blues away there. 
when I when I saw that, I I, I drew so many parallels to people that I know in their twenties and their, like maybe nineteen, twenty, twenty one, who are in Dublin at the minute. Because there's a massive amount of people moving to London, and they're asking me like, going, "Oh, well, could you stick up something to see if there's anybody." Um, getting houses or whatever and I'm like you get thinking going why do they have to move out of Dublin and it's because obviously the the, the rent and stuff is ex- extortionate and it also drew parallels with I was because I was wanted to ask the question like you know what was the music you were reacting against and then Big Tom came up and I laughed my head off because that show band era is the lamest moment in Irish musical history, but it's popped its ugly head up very, very popularly again in modern days. So you've got people like Nathan Carter and Declan Nerney, and you've got my people like my cousin, like uh, who's about eighteen or nineteen, goes to show bands, doesn't drink, has a jive, goes home. I can't, fu- I can't fucking wrap my head around it. What is? I, what do people hear in this absolute tripe? <laughs> I know. And, you know, whereas before you can sort of excuse it yeah. because there was no television in Ireland. Yeah. So people didn't get to hear uh, the music that they want. They didn't get to see or hear bands or see it on TV. So show band. You were a band who played the hits and you put on a show. So out in the country, you can understand why that took hold. For some reason, that that dreadful cul-de-sac of music called country and irish became <laughs> the, the know, worst the worst because daniel o'donnell you know who's like huge yeah. you know became became the, the the sort of go-to scene but it was the death of musicians only two got out you know there were amazing musicians in ireland who were drowned in this sort of ocean of shite and van got out he was in the Monarch show band at 15, 16, and Rory got out. He just couldn't handle it. But boy, did they learn their their craft. Yeah, yeah. I, I like- mean, Van, Van went on and played, did, you know, the Beatles stuff um, with, with them in, in Frankfurt, not, not Hamburg, and they were playing 12 hours a night and stuff. But the show bands were the death a of lot- so many... Irish bands. Yeah, a lot of a lot of musicians kind of cut their teeth there and moved on else, elsewhere. Like well, explain the New phenomenon York and, to me now, because so, you, you can go anywhere and see proper music. So yeah, exactly. But this is I don't I don't know whether it's some sort of like retro revivalism or whatever. I I come from from Northern Ireland. I come from Oma, right? And my uh, old housemate Niall uh, is from from uh, from just outside Dublin. And he used to take the piss out of me all the time. He'd be like, oh, you Nordies with your line dancing, derby, 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 and all this sort of shit. And I was like, I didn't realise that Northern Ireland... But he's had, true. I didn't, didn't realise Northern Ireland had such a reputation for line dancing. And uh, the more I looked into it, the more I heard about it. And and obviously knowing people on radio stations and stuff and, and what does well. Irish country does so well with young people. That they, I think they, the, the people who are like... Well, hold on. The thing about country music is that it is, along with hip-hop, the dominant pop of our moment. So whether it's Taylor Swift at 12 mm. and then moving on and doing the crossover stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, Garth Brooks was probably the beginning, uh, the, the massive coming out moment. I can't stand it. Um, and also... When you hear great country, when you hear Willie Nelson, mm-hmm. when you hear the Highwaymen, when you hear Christopherson, when you hear John Prime, you know you understand that this music has got a very visceral um, uh, still, uh, you know, 
need for, for, for now. Like a lot of people need to hear that to understand their moment and it has a deep relevance now. But when it gets, and it's fine even when it gets uh, moved into, who's the Australian guy who's huge, who's married to Nicole Kidman? Um, he's oh, huge. I, I can I can picture him in my head. But I can't. He's a great guy, and it's but it's it, it's it's rock. It's pop. It's it's much more than it is country. Yeah. So you know, saying like Mighty Cyrus was country, and you know, still claims to be crossover and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you have these really people who make the grade now, Miley or Taylor Swift or people like that, and they're claiming to be country, and Nashville buys into that, um, then. It's not so odd that people, you know, go back to a version of its roots. And the roots of that, of course, are Scottish-Irish. So that's probably why you get that resonance, you know. I mean, you've just hypothesized and probably concluded uh, a thought that I've had in my head for ages. So I, th- I, th- I thank you deeply for that. <laughs> Which is that it's all shite. <laughs> <laughs> it's all pile of balls. Um, but, like, did you ever, like, come across the sort of, like, the, the, the more... Irish uh, sort of notary, um, notorious names like Daniel O'Donnell and people like that. I can't, I can't imagine. Well, I just said that. Like, but I, mean, I can't imagine you two in the same room at any point. <laughs> oh, he's a lovely fella, you know. And um, but you know, is there really much of a difference between the blokish, the guy, your cousin who goes to the show bands and you know doesn't drink and like you know has a hop and goes home? Um, there's something healthy about that at the same time, I've got to say. Absolutely. It's so, it's so counterintuitive. I love that. But, uh, and Daniel O'Donnell, like, you know, you talk about people having this false intimacy of, of the web, like, you know, everyone following Taylor's every second. Daniel O'Donnell was onto this years ago, inviting fans literally back to his house where his mum would make tea for them. <laughs> and still, literally, you know. And, I mean... I can't stand the music, but the dude was onto something, you know. <laughs> YouTubers now call that a meetup. Like they'll go to a town and they'll have a meetup, and like you know they'll stand in the middle of Hyde Park and sell merch to people, and they'll chat to people. Like I mean, it's not much different. And those YouTubers are probably about eighteen or nineteen. So I mean, yeah, know, the old I mean, the old ways of marketing are probably still the best ways by the looks of things. Yeah, absolutely. If you can give this false sense of friendship and intimacy. Uh, that's what fan. That's what a fan club did, you know. Really, in the old days, you know, we had a we had a, a big fan club thing going on, and uh, but it, you know, uh, I was never into that. I was never really into the. Um, I'm not a very. I wasn't a very good star, if you like, you know. Um, I'm not sure any of my generation were very good stars. I'm not sure that that's what it was about. I wanted to be famous. Um, and I wanted to be famous because I could talk about the things that bothered me, whether through the music or in interviews and stuff like that. And I think I've done that. What was the but famous? That wasn't a cool, cool what? thing to say. You know, I was always what? dissed for that. What was the famous mission statement? I want to get rich, famous, and laid. Yeah, well, they asked me, like, you know, well, what do you want to get out? And I said three things. I want to get rich, I want to get famous, and I want to get laid. Hello? It's self-evident. I don't think there's you know? many people that would have said... I think you were just saying it without a filter, whereas most people would probably just go, yeah, what's well, all about this is all about that. I think you just were like going, this is this is it. This is what everybody wants to get famous for. Yeah, it is. I mean, Freud identified it like long ago, you know, that they were the three motivators for uh, for fame. Um, but, um, you know, it's it's far more real. 
Ireland in the 1970s, Catholic Ireland, you were not going to get shagged. You just weren't, especially if you looked like me, you know, not great. Um, you know, we'd no money, none. Uh, we were middle class, but we'd no money. So we had to keep up appearances. The worst thing of the, you know, the slipping bourgeoisie that there is, it destroys you. So keeping up appearances with no money was difficult for my dad. Um, so poverty is shit. It's always shit. There's nothing in it. It's, 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 you know, it's the denial of human capacity and opportunity. So I wanted out. And I wanted to see what it was like to have the relative freedom of money. Uh, lockdown would be a case in point. I don't have the existential fears of other people in their, you know, 12th floor, two bedroom flat, maybe losing their job. So I got out of that, and it's better. And then as for the fame thing, uh, really, literally, because I've been involved in uh, politically things before, long before the rats and during school, I wanted to use that thing as a platform. To You know, the one I was thinking of really was um, Muhammad Ali, who is a genius sportsman and used it. You know, um, people listen to Ali much more than they listen to, for example, maybe Malcolm X, say, you know, maybe, maybe. But he certainly had more of a cultural impact, not just as a sportsman, but on the things he said because he was such a genius sportsman. Now, we were never genius musicians, but because you're number one in the charts, you're influencing the music of the time. But you also get to talk about what Rat Trap is about, what I Don't Like Mondays is about, what Banana Republic is about. And, and, and that suits me. And that that was the sort of exciting thing, wasn't it? Like, like, obviously, you'll enjoy all the things that come along with being number one. But having people listen to what you want, uh, what you're saying, must have been equally as as big as going to number one. Yeah, it is. But you see, you don't start off saying you're not being prescriptive. Now I'm going to write a message. I wrote Rat Trap when I worked in an abattoir. It was the only job I could get, and rapidly you understand, you know, you're trapped. Everyone around you is trapped. I'll get out. I'm a kid. I'll just get out and go to another country. But this wasn't, you understood immediately, not just an abattoir of animals, but a slaughterhouse of human dreams. And so I just made notes about these people and they end up being a song, much to my dismay years later, and ends up being number one. So then it's 1977 or eight. Nobody has, you know, England's working three days a week. There's strikes all the time. There's no work. And so if you're trapped in that and you hear a song like Rat Trap, which isn't, I don't even think there's a hook in it, um, and, you know, you knock the crap escapist pop of the time, John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, clogging up the charts, and your track becomes the laxative to that <laughs> musical constipation then you know there's the victory in that and then people start going it's a rat trap and you've been caught and gradually it filters in and they go fuck yeah yeah that's good i like that it was a it was a precursor to what a meme is now <laughs> really yes <laughs> kind of was you, you you guys didn't um mess about either like six albums in in eight years between was it 77 and 84 like yeah. that's that that's probably I mean out of all of the bands that formed around that, that those at that, that time, 
that's probably the most productive out of any of them. Even The Clash, I don't think, did six albums, and they were seen as one of the most productive. The, the Clash were almost done by the early 80s. Yeah. None of us really survived into... Um, in, in beyond 81, 82, a new thing had happened. The Americans su- there, survived, though. Like you, you, like the Ramones survived. Like Talking Heads survived. Um, like a lot of the they survived in reputation. You mean? But they didn't survive as bands. The, Ram- the Ramones like made one great album, the first one, and then they made loads of other albums. And essentially, none of them sold. None of these bands really sold records. That's the truth, you know. Um, so when you say survive, by the time of the new romantics, really none of those bands were being discussed or were rated uh, at the time. Like, you know, there was fond memories of them. Um, you know, the pistols were the the flashing, falling meteors, you know, like, you know, a beautiful comet across the sky and quite correctly, then they go. The the You know, Elvis Costello were still writing great songs but were they were they selling now like Duran Duran or Spanda Ballet or the new electric stuff no that that, that sort of like guitar led music from the late 70s and early 80s really became it it went in a cycle it went in a fashion cycle and it was out of fashion by by the by the mid 80s really wasn't it it was but these things are cyclical so you had Bowie in the early 70s which then your, uh, you know, OMDs, Ultravoxes, um, Gary Newman's pick up on and, you know, root it in, in, in pop. Uh, and, um, you, you know, and, and that gives way to the new romantics, which is all to do again with the political economic context. You know, now you've got Thatcher. Now you've got, if punk was the beauty of ugliness, then the new romantics are the ugliness of beauty. And, um, you know, you had, um, her name is Rio and you don't have, why riot? I want to riot. You don't have that. You've got, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, you've got, you've got that sort of a difference. It's, it's, what's interesting is almost the first thing you heard of the first, um, above ground new wave bands was something about I, Joe Strummer's white riot. I want a riot of my own. Johnny Rotten. I am the Antichrist. Um, and if I can put myself in that company, the first thing you heard of the rats was, the world owes me a living. I don't want to be like you. I'm going to be like me. Because it was the end of that economic post-war consensus. And that was too cozy. And it hit a brick wall. And it was something was going to change. And really, you can view that generation of being harbingers of that change. Everyone was saying, it has to, everything was about, it's going to, it has to change. Fuck you. Just fuck off, you know, it's going to change. And it, the change happened, but no one expected it to be of the right. No one expected it to be a woman. No one expected her to have this handbag, which metaphorically swiped her party, the squirearchy, the opposition, the monarchy, the unions, any institution. You know, I've said it before, but in many ways you can argue that Margaret Thatcher is simply Johnny Rotten in drag. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and then then you get the cult of the individual, not the post-war consensual thing. 
You get the cult of, you know, loads of money. The kid, you know, just out from set making lots of money, vulgar, 18 years old, driving a Porsche with red braces and that. Cool, but don't be a twat, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so you had then the rise of that sort of excess, if you like, in, in the new romantics and sort of things like that. So all, pop is really important. I mean, people do it down. But if you want to know what's kicking off in society, look at that. And, and of course, then again, you get, as you pointed out, the cycle where you come of an age and your reference back is to the Smiths. I would have no reference to the Smiths. I kind of still think of them as a new band. You know, Oasis to me is sort of a new band, even though they ended 100 years ago. But even like the Smiths to me, like they, they were way before my time. I think I was like, they were, I was probably about one when they split up <laughs> yeah but so what you need to be is what what they what seems to happen and i've, I've read this summer is that the band that pops your rock and roll cherry at the age of 15 you will swear blood by that band up until the day you die yeah you I've, know i've i've read i read an article about that and i'll, I'll stick by it as well you know like because like, there's me too there's there's bands that i listen to i find that like because i i'm a new music dj on radio one so like my whole um life uh basically revolves around finding and unearthing good new music good new genres in the in the same spirit i'm not comparing myself to men in the slides but in the same spirit as john peel of of finding and discovering new new bits and pieces but when i need a little bit of a headspace and i'm like going driving or something like that i whack on just like i stick on like queens of the stone age which i like absolutely adored when i was 15 and there's a load of like albums around that time and that's me switching off and me just like slipping back into my comfortable nostalgia pants but i'm not sure it's comfortable nostalgia pants what you're slipping back into is what you view as excellence Mm. you know and something that made you alter the way you thought or or somehow articulated what you thought that no one had been able to do before they matched what you thought with the feeling of what you thought yeah yeah which is the absolute essence of the best music you know the rolling stones i saw the beatles the stones and bob dylan in a cinema in dublin in the same year wow. now, not in the same bill mm. but i mean you know my sister had to take me um but uh the Beatles, of course, were a phenomenon. You know, I wasn't mad for the music necessarily, but when I saw the Rolling Stones, excuse me, you know, that was it. If if I could if I could somehow encapsulate what I felt, that contemptuous insolence, and I think I was ten or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you know the way that they looked, they couldn't give a bollocks. You know, the Beatles were all in were you know, trying to make the best show possible, etc. Dylan was a sort of student thing, but the Stones, Mick hardly moved, and I didn't quite understand them, but I, you know, he was deeply attractive. What I now know is he was sexy, you know? Yeah. But he just, he just stared, and Keith was being impish. He wasn't the cool Keith. And Brian Jones just stared, like almost picked his nose with boredom, just staring around the cinema, you know? But the racket that stew of noise was confounding and exhilarating. And, you know, people make people who are into music say this too often, but quite literally life changing. But that's what, that's what be... music is like. Music is life changing. Like one record has the ability to make or break your day. And that, on a daily basis, I feel. 
Yeah. I didn't want to be Mick. Didn't want to be Keith. Didn't want to be Brian. I wanted to be them. I wanted to be in that gang. And uh, one day I got to be in it, you know. Uh, it was an <laughs> Irish version, but, you know, that'll do. <laughs> um, the, the two questions left. Like, what, one of them is, like, obviously, you know, with what you've done, I'm not going to talk about Bandy. I'm not going to talk about Levy because, like, you'd need about, like, another five or six podcasts <laughs> to go through it. So if anybody's yeah. tuned in and, and is, like, hoping to hear about that, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're going to have to go back onto YouTube and just rewatch it. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, the, the reception, I've always thought this, right? Um, that like Ireland is the best place in the world when you're on your way up to like they'll ha- you know help and and boost you and stuff. But then when you kind of make it, it's a different it's a different reaction coming home. Like, um, like I know with with you guys it was difficult. Um, after the the late late show appearance, but even with you too, and even more recent recently, I've now noticed it happen in Fontaine's DC, where everybody was their biggest fan and now they're a little bit successful and people are starting to sharpen the daggers a little bit like because because of the success is that an irish thing or is that just is that like a all around the world thing but it's particularly you know it's it's what they call menage the begrudgers aren't they yeah fuck the begrudgers they say you know but um it's the tall poppy syndrome you know which the australians call it and in any small society and of course australia is a very small society in this vast continent and, um, you know, it's sort of threatening if there's one person is the taller poppy than others. So they have to be cut down to the same size as the others. It's somehow threatening to them. And um, when we began to make it, I walked into um, the Bailey in, in Grafton Street, you know, to see uh, my mate. And two things happened. I had to be very careful about what we talked about because my life had changed completely from his i we'd just come back from touring in thailand and india and who'd have known like 18 months ago i was on the dole you know in Dunleary. so i couldn't say oh god jeez you got you should see thailand i can never guess what happened to us you know you know you could you, you know forget it so we were just chatting the, the conversation was already old because our reference points were now two years old at least. But that was one thing that I felt uh, I had to be careful about what I said in case he thought I was up my own arse. And then this drunk comes over to me and sort of digs me in the show. And he goes, and he just stares at me, you know. I knew you and you were fucking nothing. <laughs> I went, yeah. And he goes, and you're still fucking nothing, you know. And I said, yeah. And I said, no, no. I said, darling, you're wrong. I've always been something, you know. And he goes, hey, yeah, fucking come on, come on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but that's it. You know, you're, yeah. you're always going to get that, but you get it here too. Yeah. You know, like you're a cool band, you're underground. Then they get a bit suspicious when you're getting popular. Then you're in the charts, and it's all over. You've sold out. But if you never bought in, you can't sell out. You know, so it's. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fair point well the last the last question I, i'm gonna ask you it's not really even a question it's just like i was i was thinking about it the other day um when i was like sort of doing a little bit of reading um and you were listed as one of the hundred greatest britons in 2002 and then it got me thinking about like the way that britain sort of takes on people when it suits them as in like you know andy murray who like you know who will be english even though he's scottish or mainly 
and I never thought I'd put you in the same same breath as Terry Wogan and Graham Norton, but like <laughs> you've been taken on by the British public so much so that uh, like they 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 just see you as one of them. They they almost don't even really see you as Irish, really, do they? Well, I like that, and it's a compliment. Mm. Um, in, in in fact, look, the thing is that let's say Trevor Macdonald or any of the black faces that are a constant presence on our screen, they're not black anymore. They're just there. There's Trevor McDonald was reading the news or, you know, some famous, or some famous sports person or some, the blackness disappears and they hide in plain sight. So I arrived as a kid in England in the no blacks, no dogs, no Irish period. Uh, I worked in night shift at pea canning factory in Peterborough. And, you know, looking for digs the day I got here, I walked down a street and purposefully knocked on the door that said, no, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And this Italian geezer answers the door, like, <laughs> who the fuck is it? And he goes, uh, 30 shillings in a dancer. You know, and I said, okay, there, there you go, dude. But clearly I'm Irish and probably had even more of an Irish accent then. I don't know, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, we could hide in plain sight because we're, we're white. It's un, until we open our mouths, you know, it, it's not apparent. Um, and I think that, I, I mean, I'm classically Irish in my characteristics, loud mouth, cushy, you know, garrulous, etc., kicking off. Um, but I've been doing it for so long, for 40 years, um, that it, you just get to be, a face assimilated into the culture. And then more than that, and this is so, it's interesting you started off not referring to Live Aid or Band Aid, but the the entire country bought into this argument and then trusted me. And it was like a personal trust to do this thing. And quite literally they bought into it. I mean, you know, everyone just, became part of this thing and it worked and it worked because of everyone made it work. And I think that that's um, part of it. You, you, you become deeply part of that society um, as one. And I'm glad of that. Um, and uh, now and again, you'll get it, the kickback, but Terry and Graham, sort of at you behave like they expect us to behave. It's hey fellow well met, chatty, garrulous, you know, uh good broadcasters because of that. In my case, um I'm spiky. I you know they can, you know, there was a period where I think I was loved, um, which was overwhelming and not you know um too much much too much you become um i mean there was a period when i'd walk down the street this is absolutely true um old ladies would be walking down the road and they'd look up and they'd see me and they'd stop dead in their tracks <clears throat> what? and then some of them would approach and touch me <laughs> and start loving you know and you're going what you know, he has risen. He has risen. What? He has risen. Yeah, that sort of thing. And like it became unbearable, you know, really unbearable. You can't live like that. And that's why I wrote, well, I was broke, but that's why I also wrote 
the autobiography, you know, that yeah. I wrote to, to explain that this, that that guy, you know, it's part of a life. That's all. Um, but I am glad that like, you know, I've just been accepted for what I am. Um, you know, 90% of people I think, think if they know about me, think I'm a fucking pain in the arse. I'm always kicking off about something, whether it's Brexit or, you know, something else and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, where where do you stand with Black Lives Matter and and everything that's happening with them completely and entirely? I brought out a book to come out with the um, the, the Citizens of Boomtown album and the Citizens of Boomtown film. It's called Tales of Boomtown Glory. And Faber uh, asked me to bring it out, and I did it because it was flattering. The only two other people they've asked to bring out their lyrics are Radiohead and Kate Bush, and the third person they asked was me, which is very flattering. Uh, to be in that company. And so I did it. And so it's the 40 years of lyrics. Uh, and I said, I just don't want to do that. Let me write a couple of essays around some of the tunes. The ones that I can remember, the ones that I know exactly what sparked it. And one of the ones I wrote about was a minor hit called The Elephant's Graveyard, I think on the fourth album. And we were in Miami in 1981. And the day we were there, four policemen had been found not guilty by an all-white jury of killing a black insurance salesman. And, of course, the place kicked off. What was interesting for me was Miami in those times, probably still is, less so now, was thought to be where old Americans went to die in comfort and warmth if they had money. So I called it the elephant's graveyard and the contrast between the riots and this. And in the essay, you know, I lost my rag a bit. And I questioned how black America has the dignity, the elegance and the patience to put up with this overt oppression Overt. There's just no question about this. How can you keep doing this? You know, uh, you, it, it's manifested daily in the lack of opportunity, the lack of education, the lack of food, the prison numbers, you know, the lack of housing. It goes on and goes on, and it is an overt put down. And I mean, pressure down. Are, is America mad? This is the original sin of the country, and they must address it. And I actually say, it's what's it? And I, I put in black lies have never mattered. So I wrote that a year ago. And you get these violent excrescences of outrage and impatience, like now. But the problem is that they die down. I've lived through several of these, you know, several of them. There was that guy in Los Angeles, there was the Watts riot, you know, that was 67, 68, sort of thing. So I've lived through several thinking now it'll change. Now it doesn't. And I don't know about you or the people listening to this, but the greatest sense I've ever got when I arrive in America is now, woohoo, America. You know, da, 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 da. No, I always felt, and we've traveled a lot in America, this deep, profound sense of insecurity, fear. It lurks under everything. And that's why it manifests itself in these sort of nauseating american shibboleths like 
you know, the mawkish singing of the national anthem with the hand over the heart. Fuck off, do me a favor. You know, the almost, you know, the totemic uh, flag, you know, um, and all these things, insisting that they're the greatest, the bestest, the most free, the essential, the accept. No, dude, no. You know, the Rwandans think they're exceptional and essential and the best. Iranians, the Irish, the English, we all think we're unique. Truth is, yes, yeah, we are, you know. So stop with this and get to grips with the fundamental flaw and its constitution seriously needs to be addressed. That's one of the shibboleths. You know, the dudes who wrote that, very clever, beautifully written, but it was written for that moment. And it needs to be constantly readdressed. And I say that as an Irish person who over the last 12 years have enacted the greatest social and cultural revolution in Western Europe in our time, peacefully, elegantly, through arguments, through debate, and being accepted when the referendum count is in. And then they get on with it. You know, and that's what's happened in Ireland. Abortion, gay rights, equal marriage divorce, contraception. The Irish have taken apart its odious church-state compact constitution and thrown it in the bin, torn it up, and each point argued, each one elegantly so, and done it. It can be done. And America must get its head around that if this thing is not to blow up. And of course, racism happens everywhere. It happens in Africa. It happens intertribally, internationally, inter-everything. It happens everywhere. You know, the Irish make jokes about Kerry. The English make jokes about the Irish, about the Welsh. The Welsh make jokes about someone. The Scots make jokes about, you know. It's funny because it points out the essential differences. And corrosive to the end. We have to get a grips with our soul to deal with this. So you, you've, you've kicked me off, unfortunately. But... Um, <laughs> You know, it was. I was just thinking that, like, you know, luckily I just felt something coming. That must be why I'd written that essay a year, a year, year and a half ago. You know, sometimes you just feel this thing coming. You know, it does feel like an important time. And as you said, like, you know, these have come and gone before. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement started, um, I think, in 2015, 2016, and kind of went away and has, has come back with um, a vengeance now in a, in a, great way hopefully it doesn't go away this time hopefully some sort of change can but you need there needs to be half the problem is see what why black lives matter why occupy matter why these things matter why extinction rebellion matters um they have to be carefully um finely balanced as to what society will accept before it turns away so extinction unfortunately went too far in the tube trains and people's climbing the tube trains, it needs to be constantly modified and moderated where you can go. You know, I'm a pop singer in a pop band. There's a sense of the dynamic arc of uh, populism. Mm. And um, you can, once it goes too far, you've lost it. The opposite of that then is, you know, I, I one of friends of mine in, in a band that you probably love, but I, I, I I don't want to say it, but you know, he was angry about all this posting of, you know, the, just the black color uh, online. Like you just said, these empty gestures, you know, and he's right. Most people argue uh, on Twitter or in cyberspace, but that, you know, 
all you are is venting into the void. It's cyber wanking. It doesn't mean that you've committed yourself politically or you've committed yourself to change. You've had a sort of mind burp that you've like, you know, belched out onto Twitter or so, and it's gone and you think you've done something. for No, you're virtue signaling in effect, even if you feel it deeply. So what you must do is organize and be on the street. That's, you know, as we've seen, with that's when the needle starts moving. And to take it forward, you need to have a core body of people who know how to move forward with this. So you are knocking on doors, neatly dressed, and you say to, you're saying to people, how do you feel about this? Well, like, you know, I think it's over the top, spraying church and all that. Say, yeah, yeah, well, some people get a bit, you understand, they get carried. But the argument, oh, yeah, I'm for the argument. Well, look, what we're trying to do is this. Forget your digital bloody petitions. You and I could dredge up 100 million by the end of the day on something that everybody feels, you know, yeah, we should go along with this. It's, politicians have learned to completely dismiss this out of hand. And this is a uniquely unthinking government, you know. They really are, you know, you know, driven by this this sort of uh, comic book ideology. You know, like they're completely incapable. This government, they're hopeless. This blustering buffoon at the head of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's 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 a joke, and he's a non funny joke. You what know, what was that and, comic book from years ago? The Bash Street Kids. <laughs> exactly, that's what they are. I didn't want to refer to the Bean or the Dandy because I thought I'd be out of time. But you know, um, that's what it is, and it's not funny. And uh, you know, if you saw on TV this morning where the editor of the Lancet, which is the Bible of the medical profession, the Lancet, that's where you publish your papers. On telly this morning, he said, we warned the government in January and they did nothing. We told them specifically what would happen and they did nothing because in two days, uh, Johnson had a, a speech to make about Brexit. So they did nothing. 60,000 people dead, 46,000 officially because of this thing. Uniquely, more than any other place in the planet pro rata by factors of X. They are responsible for the unwarranted death of so many people. It is disgraceful. They should hang their heads in shame and resign. There's there's nowhere else I can take this podcast after that. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that can make that sentence better. <laughs> well, I, I see you're being very apolitical in BBC, but if <laughs> I neither agree nor disagree, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I've uh, had the editorial guidelines bash so far into me that even when I'm doing my independent thing, it's hard to get out of them. Um, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time for for doing the podcast. Like I've I've really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed talking about the music and everything else as well. Cool. Me too. Cheers, man. Cool. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.